0: Fifty years ago, John Lennon released his iconic single, Imagine, which has been described by many as a song of praise for an atheist. In the song, Lennon paints a portrait of the world without war, poverty, sickness, or disease, and where unity and peace reign. He describes really a true Utopian society from an atheistic perspective. But what he attributes to the reason for war, poverty, sickness, and disease comes at the very beginning of the song. It's in the very first line of the song, the very first lyric that's uttered in the song. Imagine, he says, there is no heaven. It's easy, he says, if you try... No hell below, above us, only sky. Lenin envisioned this utopian society where there was, as he described in the song, a brotherhood of man, a a unity among the people of earth. That, That peoples and nations of every tribe and tongue could live with a pluralistic world view. In other words, that we could put aside our beliefs, our doctrine, our stances. What what Lenin understood was that religion was the result, or rather war and division was the result of religion. To put it another way, that doctrine is what divides humanity. Humanity. And that if we would just eliminate doctrine, then we could truly be at peace and not at war. What, what Lenin describes in this iconic song, which frankly is terribly written and has terrible music to, um, <laughs> just to be clear... <laughs> I know it might be in your top 10, but all right, it's not good. All right, listen, listen, friends, to what you sing. All right, that's the moral of the story. No, no, what John Lennon describes in this iconic song, which many of you heard blasting through the radio as it was released. Yes, you are that old, um, describes is a marshmallow world. It's a world of fluff. It's a world filled with. Pluralism. Relativism. Everything is relegated to this this realm of whatever is true for you is good with me, man. And this sense of pluralism that Lenin sang in his song became so iconic truly, in my opinion, captures the world in which we live in. Friends, that was just the embryonic stage of what we now see is a full-grown baby moving into adolescence here in 2021. The world that you and I exist in is really the heartbeat of our society and culture. Pluralism and relativism. Where everything goes and there is no defined boundaries of truth. In fact, we can see it in this debate among gender and gender identity. Where my gender can be defined by my own words. I can be whatever I want to be. It's fluid. It changes. It transforms. There there is no definitive black and white. It is all minutia. It's all gray. What Lennon captures and what he celebrates and invites you to participate in is a world where there is no heaven or hell, no doctrine of eternity, no doctrine of God, no doctrine of sin, and no doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Just here and now. Just the present. Experience, just the immediate. That's all that matters. All that matters is today. Friends, while lyrically and melodically, imagine is an awful song, in my opinion, frankly is very depressing. It, it, It demonstrates quite vividly. The futility of a pl- pluralistic society. Nothing. Nothing. Just the creation around you here today and gone tomorrow. Nothing after. No more than a mere 80 or so years. Live. Breathe, do your thing, and then die. Friends, this is the world that we live in. It's the world of your friends. It's the world of your family and neighbors. This is is the world that you consume through media and entertainment. This is the lens that, that, that everyone around you sees this world through. Pluralism. Relativism. It is the value of being an American. Where we can all just agree to disagree. And there's no defined truth any longer. But as Christians, we live in light of revealed truth. We live in light of doctrinal orthodoxy. Of dogmatic statements. Even this morning, when you sang, you made some pretty provocative truth claims. You sang to a God. (laughs) You believe there's a God. You, You believe that he's king, and that means you ain't king. That means whoever's occupying the White House ain't king. That means something. The fact that you gathered here this morning and not online... You declared something about what church is and what church ain't. As Christians, Christ has not left his church without the answers of how to live in a society that is pluralistic and relativistic. Jesus Christ makes definitive truth claims, dogmatic claims about truth, about right and wrong and who he is and and who we are. There's no getting around them. There's no middle road. This morning, as we continue this study through 1 Timothy, you are going to be confronted with some pretty clear statements that that Jesus makes through his word. Paul here is opening up the body of this letter in 1 Timothy, and we, two weeks ago, just kind of considered very briefly the introduction. Here we find the historical context of the letter. We're told that, That Paul is leaving Macedonia and he's leaving Timothy in Ephesus. Now the apostle, or rather Luke, the one who wrote the book of Acts, tells us that Paul had two trips in the Macedonian region. And Ephesus is a part of the Macedonian sort of region. We're told that there were two trips that Paul made down to Ephesus. One was just a short trip and the other one was a two year trip as we study this letter, we, we begin to see that the timing of this seems to have happened on a third occasion, some third time in which Timothy has made his, his trip down there. And so as we consider this this morning, I want you to not be so concerned about where they're at, because frankly, Paul only alludes to it once and then he moves on. And scholars are quite debated about, in fact, if Timothy's really in Ephesus or not, or if or if rather Paul gave him this an assignment at a church when they were together in Ephesus regardless this morning the historical context can be made clear by reading just understanding the text what it's kind of clear what's happening Paul makes clear that he's writing to Timothy to encourage him in his pastoral ministry and teaching ministry and to confront false teaching The heart of the letter is to address an issue going on in the church, most likely the church in Ephesus, that of false teaching. And interestingly enough, Paul had in Acts chapter 20 warned against this exact thing. He had told the elders of the church in Ephesus that false teachers were going to arise from among them. Not from among the members, but from among the teachers and preachers. And Paul's writing to Timothy and says, hey, Timothy, the problem's in who is leading and, and who's teaching. But as, I, but as I tried to convince you of last time, that while this is a personal letter, personal correspondence, it was not meant to remain personal. This is why the church historically has seen this as divine truth, because it's in your Bible. We believe that this is God's word, not merely to Timothy, who is in a grave somewhere in the Middle East. But to the church of the living God. And it's to us this morning. And so it comes to us as authoritative. This, this message, this truth is for us this morning. And do not misunderstand that it's not merely to pastors. It's not just to the leaders of the church, though, though it is. It's first and foremost, I believe, to the congregation. This is what you should see in your leader. This is the kind of pastor you should be celebrating and desiring. This is the kind of behavior that you should be embracing. When when Paul says to Timothy, I encourage men everywhere to lift holy hands. right? This wasn't a suggestion like, hey, I think the men in the church should be praying. Rather, this is an exhortation. And so while elders and pastors have a particular role in guarding the truth, brothers and sisters, as Pastor Rod did so helpfully last week in that conversation about parents and children, just because it doesn't have immediate application, first-level application, does not mean you can tune it out. You know That's why I think the title Pastoral Epistles can be unhelpful. Uh, so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are considered the Pastoral Epistles. And so you might be like, well, I'm not a pastor, so I don't need to read those. I don't want to be a pastor, right? Not at all. These are meant for you this morning. And so with that in your mind and in light of that, um, I pray that you hear these words as, as written to you as your responsibility this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I invite you to have your Bibles open there and, and follow along as we look at this text this morning. Again, this is the Apostle Paul speaking and writing to Timothy. He says, as I urged you, young Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So this week I want us to, to think about these verses. Next week we'll get into the weeds, if you will, a bit about the law and how, as Christians, we read and understand the Old Testament law, which, in my personal opinion, has fallen on hard times among evangelical Christians. We we seem the we see the law as some something uh in the past and not for us today. But before we get to that. We want us to think about these these verses. Well, what is Paul's main idea? What is his point? Well, I've tried to capture it here for you this morning in this way. Christians, again, notice I use the word Christians, not pastors, elders. But Christians are to guard the teaching ministry of the local church. In other words, it is your responsibility to, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and a member of this church, it is your God-given responsibility to guard the teaching ministry of the local church. How do you do that? By remaining committed to biblical, gospel-centered preaching and teaching that aims at love. Let me say that again, that we are to guard the teaching ministry of this church by remaining committed to biblical Christ-centered or gospel-centered preaching and teaching that aims at love. So if our preaching is not aiming at love, it's not motivated by love, it does not have the goal of love in mind that it is not Christ-centered. It's not gospel-centered. If our preaching and teaching is not based upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's not biblical, in other words, if we're not teaching expositionally, then we are not teaching faithfully. Lastly, we see here that we are to guard the teaching ministry. In other words, it is both defensive and offensive. We are offensively um, dealing with false teaching through faithful preaching and teaching, but we are also guarding by correcting, by calling out. In other words, um, you and I have a responsibility to guard the truth. And so, we have three points this morning I want us to consider. What are Christians to do when confronted with false teaching in the local church? What are we to do? Number one, deal with it. (laughs) Deal with it. Baptists are good at pointing out problems. They're terrible about dealing with them. And that's probably true of most church folks. We know where the problems are. We know where the issues are. We we know when people go astray. It doesn't take much to figure that out, but we don't deal with it. Oh, we just, you know, we're just doing this and that. It's all right. It ain't going to hurt nobody. We have to deal with it. Secondly, we have to confront false teachers in love. In love. What, what, what is our motivation? Do we just want to be right? Thirdly, we, hear, we see here that we must expose the futility of false teaching. You see, we've got we've to learn to expose it for what it is. To, to carry around the flashlight of God's word. It is a light unto my path. it's a flash, it's a light, it illuminates. It shines a light. The Bible inherently brings light where there's darkness and false teaching needs light. And light is brought by exposing it and exposing it for what it really is. It's futile and foolish and it leads only to destruction. As we'll see later in 1 Timothy of Jimenez and Alexander who have been handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, let's look at these three points first. Deal with false teaching. Look what Paul writes. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Well, Paul here tells us the location in which Timothy has been left. Most likely it is in Ephesus, perhaps at the main church there, or in some other church that has uh, been planted outside of the the main church there in the city center. And he tells him that he is to to go to Ephesus or or to remain in Ephesus with a particular purpose. Uh, In other words, Timothy isn't just to be just a church member down there in Ephesus. He isn't just to be a nursery worker or Sunday school teacher, but that he is to be a preacher and teacher similar to his instructions to Titus. He told Titus, hey, Titus, I'm sending you down to Crete to clean things up. Things are all disordered. Things are a big mess down there, and I'm sending you down there to get things straightened out and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Well, where Titus was to put leadership ministry in order, here Timothy is instructed to put the teaching ministry of the church in order. You see the difference? You see, Titus was to to, to help organize the polity or the governance of the church here, Timothy is to put in order the teaching ministry of the church. And you might say, well, Pastor, how does that fit with 1 Timothy 3, where Paul or yeah, where Paul lists out all of these characteristics of pastors and deacons? How does that affect the teaching ministry? Doesn't that sort of fall in the category of, of organization? No. You see, because what Paul is going to argue throughout this letter is that right living leads to right doctrine and that you can pick up real quick on bad doctrine when they're living bad lives. And there's a correlation between the way one lives and the way one teaches. In other words, here, get this, if you're not willing to submit to theological truth, why do you think one is going to submit to moral truth? In other words, if someone is, going to, is not able to articulate who Jesus is, how are they going to be able to follow Jesus? By obeying him. Well, Paul gives Timothy a very clear assignment, doesn't he? Look with he, here in verse 3 again. He says, so that, it's a purpose statement, so that, Timothy, you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. The language that Paul uses here is that of purpose. There was a particular aim in mind. Timothy had a responsibility to correct the teaching of the church through gospel preaching. Just as we heard there in that scripture reading in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God, and of these many witnesses, what? To preach the word. How do you deal with false teaching? Preach the word. Paul goes on to say, I charge you. I give you this responsibility that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That that word that Paul uses there, of charge, he doesn't say I command you or I'm encouraging you. He says, I charge you. It's military language. Like a general to his lieutenant, I am telling you this is what you need to go do. The language that Paul uses emphasizes the importance of his responsibility. He was to have a singular focus in the word ministry of the church in Ephesus. He was not to put this on the back burner, get to it if he had time, to devote himself to the latest marketing schemes of, of reaching the neighborhood or the the latest music church growth uh schematics whatever it was to be no he was to commit himself to faithful biblical teaching and to do so by correcting theological error but what was these false teachers teaching well unhelpfully paul doesn't really get into the the finer details Notice what he says. He says, I want you to stay there in Ephesus and I want you to make sure that these teachers do not teach any different doctrine. In other words, he wants to correct their theology. Now, sometimes Paul will tell him to tell them to stop teaching. But here it seems that he wants them to 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 turn back into the truth. He wants them to to correct that which they've gone astray in. He goes on in verse 4. Nor to devote themselves. Again, notice the intentionality. They were devoted to something other than the gospel, other than truth. Devote themselves to what? Well, it seems the nature of their false teaching and their false doctrine laid at the feet of these two words, myths, and endless, what he describes as endless genealogies. Well, there was two things that Jew, just to kind of tip, tip the hand a little bit of Paul here, it seems to be this was a Jewish problem. All right, so, so while in Ephesus they were dealing with Greco-Roman culture, right, the sort of poly- um, theism of the day, the, the many gods of the day. That, that doesn't seem to be the heart of the issue. No, rather the heart of the issue seems to be Jewish false teaching of some sort. And it centered around myths and endless genealogies. And there was a number of historical examples of those for which we don't really need to get into the weeds on. But, but regardless, it seems to be that they were taking some truth And seeking to kind of pull the curtain back, if you you will, and find the the deeper meaning there. You ever ever been around someone like that? Well, you know, if you take all these words in the Bible and you begin to count them out and it begins to prophesy about certain historical events that have already happened, right? Um, Or I think this means this particular, right? They they, they kind of begin to... You know, and I've, I've said it kind of quipped a little bit and jokingly. If you, if you've, if you need a map uh, or a, a, some sort of visual presentation to help teach a theological point, um, you lost me, all right? Uh, what I'm talking about is called the perspicuity of Scripture. So you can write that down, perspicuity, and you can you learned a new word today in school, Um <laughs> Perspicuity simply means that the Bible is clear, all right? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The Bible is clear. There's no hidden meanings. There's no, you know, code to decipher. So Dan Brown, a number of years ago, came out with uh, sort of a pop culture level of, uh, of trying to uh, uh, conspiracy theory code cracking of the Bible, At the heart of it is trying to undermine the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture. And it seems to be somewhat of the nature of what was happening here. Paul bookends this letter where he began by exhorting Timothy to guard the teaching ministry of the church. If you have your Bibles open, just flip over to chapter 6. So we're kind of looking ahead a little bit to get a better understanding of what Paul means. While we're looking at just a few verses here, we really need to read the whole letter to get a real sense of what he means by false teaching. Timothy knew what he meant, but we don't. We, we weren't there. So we have to use the letter to get a sense of what he means. We'll look here in chapter 6, verse 2b, two, two and a half, halfway through verse 3. Teach and urge these things if anyone teaches a different doctrine. And does not agree, here we go, with what? The sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And he goes on, he's puffed up, and we'll we'll look at that a little bit more in detail in here in a minute. In other words, notice here the correlation, as I mentioned earlier, between sound doctrine or healthy doctrine, healthy words, of who? Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with what? Godliness. In other words, at the heart of these false teachers was a breakdown of morality and theology. They had both bad living, they weren't godly, and bad teaching. And Paul, Paul says to Timothy, Liz, if anybody goes astray on these two things, you can know for sure that they are teaching a different doctrine. In other words, let me give you some contemporary examples. If one comes to you and says that it does not matter your sexual preferences, if it, do, it does not matter whom you have sexual relations with, it could be one of the same or of the opposite, inside or outside the bounds of marriage, then you're okay with God. You can be a Christian. This would be in the matter the category of morality. Or if someone came to you and said, oh, no, 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 there are many ways to get to heaven and that those who believe in Allah are, are, are the same as those who believe in Yahweh. They're one and the same God. They're just coming at it from a different lens or different angle. In fact, even Buddha perhaps gets you to the celestial point would be an example of theological error. Well, Paul goes on and makes clear the reason why Timothy must deal with this false teaching. That this isn't something simply to brush under the rug, just to ignore, to get to when he has time, but rather to deal with. Why must we deal with false teaching? Well, look what Paul says is the reason. He goes on, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, comma, which, and here he goes into the reason, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. In other words, the reason why we must deal with false teaching is that it leads to and promotes confusion rather than faith. It undermines faith in people. And perhaps you've been there, right? You've been a part of a church that that has held the keys, if you will, so tightly that you feel as if you don't know God or the Bible and you can't know the Bible apart from your pastor telling you what the Bible says. That's a dangerous place to be, friend. And, And here it leads and promotes to confusion rather than faith. Notice here the foolishness of, of their deceptiveness. He says, "It promotes what? What does their false doctrine promote? Speculation. not clarity, not commitment. right? It doesn't settle issues. It just promotes more and more speculations. It just perpetuates confusion. But see, our God is not a God of confusion he's not again to round in this idea of perspicuity friend our God is a God of clarity he doesn't mince words now are there passages of scripture that are more difficult than others yes even Peter himself the apostle Peter says man you ever read some of Paul's stuff that dude's pretty hard to read sometimes can I get an amen right and and that's true. It is. There are some more difficult passages, but but here's the thing. Everything you need to know about God, about your sin, and about Jesus coming to die, uh, about your need to repent and believe, uh, about what the church is and what we are to do and believe and behave as Christians, those passages are very clear. There's no confusion. There's no debate. In fact, there's another word I want you to to kind of embrace, and it's the word orthodoxy. Orthodoxy versus heterodoxy. Orthodox means it's what we have always believed. It's the standard. What we believe today is what the church has believed about the Bible and its revelation since the beginning. The doctrines that we hold are old doctrines. They're not new doctrines. And while false teaching promotes confusion, faithful orthodox teaching promotes faith in God's work. Notice what he says here. Rather than, in contrast to what he's, the idea is faithfulness here. The idea is, in contrast, he says, rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, a lot of folks have tripped up over this word stewardship. You'll see even a footnote in your ESV Bible. You look down at the bottom, it says good order. What's what's Paul talking about here? Well, most likely what Paul means by stewardship from God is coined in a more modern word of salvation history. In other words, God has a plan And God has been working out that plan in redemptive history from before he ever created the first molecule in the cosmos. And there is an order to the plan. And God is sovereignly unfolding that plan and purpose. And you're a part of that plan. God's saving you and calling you to himself. You're a part of that plan. Jesus coming to die is a part of that plan. And what Paul is essentially saying is that false doctrine undermines the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It unsettles God's unfolding redemptive plan that he is unfolding for his glory. So he's contrasting the disorder of false teaching with the ordered doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the point I want you to get. Doctrine is to be ordered. Every word in a doctrinal statement is there for a historic reason. Every word in the Apostles' Creed, when we read together, that creed from almost 1800 years ago, when you utter that in your, every word has a particular meaning and purpose. Every one from the, the council at Nicaea in 325 when the, when the elders and bishops got together and, and put that together. Or in 381 in Constantinople when they began to forge out these historic documents of faith. Or in 1833 when the New Hampshire Confession of Faith was drafted by which the Baptist Faith and Message is based. All of these historic creeds and confessions point back to the same theological truths that Christians have believed since Jesus walked this earth. And that's the point. Paul here is exhorting Timothy, and he'll do so later, to have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourself in godliness. There will be a temptation to go down the rabbit holes of these false teachers. And friends, if you've been in church long, you'll know there's a lot of theological rabbit holes. And one of the, the tenors that, that I, and, and I know Pastor Rod, this is his heart too, we try to set this tenor, but we ain't going down no rabbit holes. Alistair Begg says it more clearly than anyone I know. He says the main things are the plain things, and that the plain things are the main things. And I know Be- Begg isn't really get—he didn't come up with that on his own. He's relying on someone else. But, but we'll give him credit this morning. Um, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, brothers and sisters. In other words, we want to know what's orthodox. What are we being dogmatic about, and what are we not? Other scholars have called this theological triage. We, we need to understand there are different levels of theology for which we need to be dogmatic about and where we need to be charitable. The doctrine of God, we're not very charitable with. All right, Christians historically have a belief about who God is. That he is the triune God revealing himself in three persons, father, son, and spirit. The Bible is very clear about man and doctrinal statements by Christians for the last 2000 years have been very clear that man is depraved, unable to repent and believe in Jesus apart from the, the new birth. That we are born in sin and rebelling against God and if, and if Jesus Christ does not come to save us, we will die in our trespasses and sin and we will live eternity apart from God in a place called hell. But you see, what I've experienced and perhaps you've experienced in your, in your Christian experience is there are certain things that po- folks have elevated to that top tier that really should belong down at the bottom. Things like, and I'll pick on our end times lovers out here, positions on the rapture of the church. You might think, well, that, that right there is the line in the sand. If you don't believe in a literal secret rapture of the church, well, you are outside. You are a, That's heterodoxy. That's that's false teaching. Well, friend, you're going to be real grumpy when you get to heaven and find, <laughs> hear me now, 1,800 years worth of Christians who never once believed in any secret rapture of the church. All right? You're going to be like, what? This is all new? Yeah, friend, it's new. Just chill out. You see, we tend to elevate minor things and make them major things. And we love to major on the minors. Why? Because it makes us feel special. It may, We want to be important. We want people to like us. And so we major on these obscure doctrines that Christians have charitably debated for thousands of years, friends. This morning, this room is filled with folks that that might define themselves as more reformed, Calvinistic, believing in predestination. There might be some in here this morning that, that maybe don't. They, they fall on a, a different spectrum in understanding uh, of salvation. But yet you're members of the same church. Why? Because we're not drawing the line in the sand there, brothers and sisters. We're not doing it. This morning you might be a pacifist. But doctrinally we believe in just war theory. Our doctrinal statement is very clear, but you may be a member of our church. Why? Because we're not going to draw the line for membership there. But we will draw the line on baptism. We will draw the line on regenerate church membership. So if you're not a Christian this morning, we love you. We want you to come to know Jesus, but you can't be a member of our church. If you're living in unrepentant sin, you can't be a member of our church. Why? Cuz we we don't want to we don't we hate you? No. Because we love you. And that gets to our, third, our second point this morning. You see, we must take doctrinal error seriously because the stakes are st- so high. We, we can't turn a blind eye to it. But when we deal with false teaching, we must do it in love. Look what he says here. I love this. I, 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 I mean, I love it because he Paul knew Christians, <laughs> I guess. I think you got it. It's all good. You'll get it this afternoon if you didn't get it. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul makes very clear that the motivation and goal of biblical teaching and preaching must be love. Must be love. Look what he says. The aim, the goal, the word there that he uses is goal. Tell us. The goal. What what he hopes to arrive at. In the teaching ministry there in Ephesus. He says Timothy your aim. In the exhortation to correct. False teaching and to preach faithfully. Must be love. Not worldly love. But biblical love. And Jesus. Doesn't leave you to your own imagination on what love is. Love is a bloody cross. Love is washing the feet. Of a traitor. Love. Is. Patiently. Restoring. Peter. When he betrays you three times. Love. Is forgiving a brother when he sins against you 72 times. Love. Endures all things, hopes all things. It's love. And it's hard. Our motivation in preaching and teaching, whether it be from the pulpit, in Sunday school, in small group, in one on one conversations, must be love. The motivation in correcting theological error among the members of this church must be love. We cannot respond to false teaching with threats, but with love. We've got to check our hearts at the door. This is non-negotiable. And so many preaching ministries in the name of biblical fidelity, they call themselves discernment ministries, Lack love, brothers and sisters. They lack the motivation and the heart to love. And Paul makes clear that love cannot be self-generated, but it has its source from outside of you. And notice what he says. Look what he says. It issues from, in other words, the source of love are three things. What What does he say? A pure heart, A good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, what produces love in our preaching are these three things. And if one of these are missing, then our preaching will be without love. Our ministries will be without love. They will be without compassion. They will be without care. They'll be without sacrifice. They'll be without patience and endurance. They will be cold, hard, and embittered. And they will be unhelpful and useless to the things of God. He says, A pure heart. The heart was the center of one's emotion and volition. In other words, it's your decision making center. Or rather, your, your moving center. It's, it's what informs your decisions. It's your emotions. It's the desires that drive you. Notice he describes it as a pure heart. Not a defiled heart. Not an impure heart. But a pure heart. One that's been purified by what? The Word. You see, unloving preaching is because those preachers haven't been in the Word. unloving correction that you've been a recipient of or perhaps you've been a giver of is because you haven't been in the word the word of God is a purifying agent in our lives you want to have a pure emotions you want to have a pure volition then you must be informed by the word the word transforms but he goes on not only a pure heart but a good conscience Our conscience is our moral and ethical engine in our soul. It's what tells you that stealing is wrong. That murder is wrong. That lying is wrong. But you see, here's what happens to our consciences. Every time we sin, every time we go against God's will and purpose in our life, our conscience gets a little weaker and numb. The word is normal. Here's what happens. When you rub up in this world with the things of this world, your conscience begins to be normalized, equalized to this world. You begin to accept the things of this world. You begin to see normal things that are abnormal. You you begin to identify with things in this culture which are counter cultural to the things of Jesus. And Jesus here, or Paul here uh, describes it as a good conscience. You see, every one of us have a seared conscience, a bad conscience. But our conscience is being transformed, we are told in Scripture, by the Spirit through the Word. Even this morning, the Spirit, outside of my power, for His glory, is transforming your conscience this morning. Under the preaching of God's word, this is one of the means of grace that God gives to informing your conscience. And telling you right and wrong, the Spirit cleans our consciences. And every time we fall in sin, our consciences are are off-centered. So Paul is saying that the reason why we might lack love in our preaching and teaching ministries is because we have bad consciences. In fact, let me say this. You want to know why a lot of preachers don't confront darkness? It's because they live in darkness. You want to know why you are ashamed to call your friends and family to faith in Jesus? Because you don't live by faith in Jesus. And you know it, and you've just convinced everyone around you that you do. You see good consciences. Consciences that have been informed by the spirit. Through the word. Are able to boldly speak. Into theological error. But if you yourself are living in ungodliness. In sin. You will never call sin out. You will never call out theological error. Neither will I. Can you see why. Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that an overseer must be above reproach. Because you see, if he's not above reproach, his conscience is seared and he's no stinking good to anybody, not even himself. Because he won't call out theological error. Finally, he says, sincere faith. It is a posture of one's hopes that rests solely on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you aren't sincere in your faith, then you're not going to call anybody else to sincerity. Let's be honest. If you're not convicted and convinced that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, you don't care when someone claims the name of Jesus and says, Well, the Bible, you can just kind of do with it what you want. No, it's the Word of God. This is our foundation. This is what we're teaching from this morning. I don't don't have some Southern Baptist book up here. I don't have some other Christian book. I don't even have the Apostles' Creed up here. What I have is the undefiled, inerrant word of God given to us from Jesus through the apostles. This is what we got. That's it. And that's all you have this morning. Friend, I wonder this morning, and and, and I'm, I'm taking this from... Philip Ryken, he, he asked this question. I ask it to you this morning. Do you practice the doctrine of love as much as you love doctrine? And I love doctrine. I love theological doctrine. I love reading theological books that are a thousand pages long. I love that stuff. On my shelf at home right now, my kids make fun of me because it's the 1611 Church of England, Book of Common Prayer. It's been my devotional this year. I love doctrine. I love theology. But I wonder how much do we love the doctrine of love? You know, we can be the smartest in theology, but if we lack love, what does the Apostle Paul say? We're just a resounding gong. We're just making a bunch of clamoring noises, and we mean nothing, and and helping no one. We've all listened to music that's off-key, Right? It ain't helping nobody, right? We want to cultivate in our lives a love for God's people and a love for the biblical truth, not in arrogant, prideful ways, but in convictional confidence. And this is our last point very quickly. Paul deals with this. And we're going to, we're going to develop six and seven a little bit more next week, so, so don't get too frustrated. Uh, with me this morning he goes on and he says this is when we deal with false teaching we must do it with the right motive in other words we must do it with love and finally we see here that that the gospel of the lord jesus christ is the message of hope and love thus we must be messengers of love but in that our goal our aim is to expose the futility and the foolishness of false teaching. Very quickly, look at the language Paul uses. He says, now, there are certain people that by swerving from these, and these I, I take to mean theological truth, captured in verse 5. Having wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding without understanding either what they say or are saying, or the things about which they make confident assertions. Here's the point. They are aimless and therefore unhealthy and unhelpful. Look at the language Jesus. Look at the word picture that Paul paints here. Swerving and wondering. Aimlessness, isn't it? A number of years ago, when I came to this church, I had a comment given to me after the service by one of our members. Still, still here today. Uh, and this person said to me, man, you believe what you're preaching up there. You you actually believe what you're saying. I was like, yeah, of course I do. Why would I be up here if I didn't believe it. Why would I be up here talking about it? And that's not to shade a lot of myself, but... But that is what biblical preaching has to be, that sort of confidence. But notice what the Apostle Paul says. Are you confident in the right places? See, while they were aimless in their theological convictions, they were swerving and wandering into vain discussions. And in other words, pointless discussions, pointless conversations. And how many, how many pointless conversations have you ever been a part of when someone wants to talk about superlapsarianism? Right? You're like, I've never even talked about that before. Well, then get on Facebook and Google some, you know, find some Christian discussion group, and there you'll find it. I mean, how many silly conversations have I ever, have you seen, I've seen on places like social media discussing theological arguments? Well, friends, that is not the place to do that, about, right? Vain discussions. There are some people that their, their, their heads are so hard, you, even Jesus couldn't convict them. Thomas was one of Jesus's own disciples and couldn't even believe it was Jesus. And he was standing right in front of him. Friend, you ain't going to convince anybody. And it's vain. And notice here, desiring to be teachers of the law. And that seems to be the heart of the issue, which we'll deal with next week, is that they they, they were teachers of the law. They they had the right interpretation, right? You've been there. Oh, I've received a word from the Lord. This is thus saith the Lord. Nobody else has ever came up with that interpretation before but you and your cronies. And Paul hits hard as we conclude this morning. He says they do not understand either what they're talking, I don't even know what they're saying, or the things about which they make confident assertions. Here's the deal. There are some people in the name of discernment ministries and those who claim to have a secret understanding that they are just straight jerks. And that's the point of it, that that, that we should not be arrogant and prideful when it comes to our theological positions, but we want to be clear. We want to be confident in orthodox truth. You see, they desire to have this secret knowledge of the law and to misapply it. Philip Towner, I think, helpfully clarifies that these characteristics make a timeless portrait of false teachers. A timeless portrait. You want to, know, you want to find a false teacher? Here, here, here's how you can... They, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't even know what they're saying. And they make confident assertions about which they don't know nothing about. They, they may have a lot of degrees and they may use a lot of words, but they have no idea what they're talking about. He goes on to say that doctrinal subtleties, special interpretations, spurious claims to authority, controversy, and dogmatism ought to make God's people suspicious. At the same time, he says, evidence of these same tendencies in our own lives ought to cause alarms to go. Friends, it's easy to throw bombs at others. There's a number of ministries right now that are in my mind that I think are terrible at disobeying. Terrible. I I, I think they're in disobedience of chapter 1 verse 5. I think they're disobeying God because they lack love. But equally as much, it's easy to throw bombs at them without looking at your own heart. And And to say, you know, where am I being controversial where, where am i drifting into some online blog that's got me down some rabbit trail about some obscure theology friends if you you want to remain committed to the truth just be in your word study aids are helpful and, and they have a right place but remember that word perspicuity it's clear here, here here's what i want to leave you with brother or sister if you are a born-again believer this morning If you have been regenerate by the Holy Spirit, here's the truth. And this is the truth. The Spirit of God dwells within you. He lives in you. He's not going to give you new revelation. He's not going to whisper in your ear and and, and whisper sweet somethings to you. Not at all. But you know what He is going to do? If you have your Bibles open, as you read and pray, Spirit, speak through your word. You see, that same spirit that dwells in you is the same spirit that inspired Paul to write this letter. And you can pray, Holy Spirit, illumine, open my eyes to see your word, that I might believe and trust in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must guard the teaching of this church By remaining committed to gospel-centered preaching. That's what we must do. You and I will be held responsible before Jesus on the day of judgment for how we stewarded this responsibility. End of the story. But we must do it with love as our goal. Our aim must be love. And we cannot, must not allow False teaching to perpetuate with with ignorance or willful neglect. We can't just sweep it under the rug. We must deal with it. As we conclude this morning, I'll leave you with this helpful reminder from the reformer John Calvin. He says, we must therefore teach that faithful ministers are now not permitted to coin any new doctrine." But that they are simply to cleave to that doctrine to which God has subjected men without exception. I said, Orthodox biblical teaching until Jesus comes again. Let that be our prayer for God's glory.